This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Tonight, we're going to learn about how to handle an emergency. Imagine you are a local leader and you've been called to a meeting, and this is what you hear. And the city manager starts the meeting. And she says, we're here because we learned that 25,000 survivors are coming here on a bus today. And we've got to figure out where to house them. And then she says the thing that chilled all of our hearts and souls, she said, now I know some of you in this, in this room are better equipped to handle this and deal with this meeting than I am. So I am turning it over to you. And we looked at each other like, well, hold up. Hold up. We want you to tell us what you want us to do, how we can help. Not turn the meeting over to people who just found out about it today. Well, that was the Reverend Willie Bennett. He led a meeting on resilience in Sydney and he urged us to build strong communities before the climate emergencies hit us. He witnessed Cyclone Katrina, and really, he learned a lot. Communities where there's trust and cooperation already are the resilient ones. After Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, he said the church groups were the heroes. We'll also hear from Pacific communities, um, from the Reverend Sephirosa Carol, she's a minister with the Uniting Church, and then after her, Dr. Cassandra Goldie from ACOS will tell us, starting with her experience in Darwin, where she also witnessed a cyclone and realised that she didn't have a plan. Uh, I learned something new today about uh, paying respect to the original owners of the land, which is impressive to me, seeing as we don't do that in the States with all the things that we have done. I would like to pay respects to the original owners of the land, to current elders and past elders. I stand in solidarity with you as a person of color and suffering history, past and present. And we call upon all people of goodwill to work together to create the kind of future we all want for our children. Um, uh, again, my name's Willie Bennett. I'm lead organizer of TMO in Houston, Texas. This is my fourth city to be lead organizer in. I want to share with you tonight about an extraordinary set of events. Not necessarily Hurricane Katrina, 
But the response, or lack of response to Hurricane Katrina was really a disaster. And our experience in that, when I was in the city of Dallas at that time, and with our networking working with survivors, is after Labor Day, I think it's 2005, and I, I'm talking to the treasurer of my organization who happens to be a manager for the Environmental Protection Agency in Dallas, Texas. And I say, hey, just like we dodged a bullet uh, in New Orleans, uh, Hurricane Katrina didn't hit. And he told me this. He said, no, Willie. Those levees are going to fail. They're going to break. And I'm afraid thousands of people are going to die. And the levees broke later on that evening. So people fled New Orleans, and they went to Houston, which has ties. It's about, what, three hours or four hours from New Orleans. And lots of people have ties to Houston. And they went to Houston, and we heard about what happened in Houston. Uh, and so then we hear that people are coming to Dallas because that's another place people had connections, and there wasn't room in Houston. And so I get a call saying, hey, there's this meeting the mayor's calling to try to figure out what to do with the survivors coming here. Can you come? I said, All right, okay. We'll do that. We want to do that. So I went there, and about 100 people in the room, mostly African-American. What's notable is who's not there. Many of the heads of agencies who were white were not there because they weren't invited. I thought, hmm, disaster. People coming here need help. Agency heads are not invited. Hmm. So the meeting starts, and the city manager starts the meeting. And she says, we're here because we learned that 25,000 survivors are coming here on a bus today. And we gotta figure out where to house them. And then she says the thing that showed all of our hearts and souls. She said, now I know some of you in this, in this room are better equipped to handle this and deal with this meeting than I am. So I am turning it over to you. And we looked at each other like, well, hold up, hold up. We want you to tell us what you want us to do, how we can help. Not turn the meeting over to people who just found out about it today. And so they called up a brother who was a pastor, a nice guy, but he was not the kind of person you want leading a big coalition of something that's never happened before. <laughs> and so he's up there doing what he does, and, and you know, a good guy with a starts degenerating. And then he calls up somebody else that does an even worse job, and then our lovely mayor walks into the room, Laura Miller, whom African Americans loathe. And she goes up, she looks at this train wreck happening. Knows 25,000 people are on the way. And she walks up to the mic, shoves the guy out of the way, and takes over the meeting. Well, African Americans immediately got angry. And many of them walked out. Well, she had enough, so she just called three of the largest pastors together, T.D. Jakes, a couple of others, and said, look, I'm going to meet with you three. Let's go meet somewhere else. Let the rest of us in the room. And that's how we prepared to welcome 25,000 people to the city of Dallas. It was a mess. Well, there are a couple of things I want to share with you that, that we learned from this mess and how we worked in around this. 
First thing is that leadership matters. Politicians don't know everything. All right? I, mean, I don't know if that's a new flag. But for many of our people, that's a new flag. They don't know everything. Uh, and, but they must make decisions. Okay? And so sometimes they make decisions without good information, but they have to make a decision. The thing that we brought to the table and bring to the table is that we help make better decisions because we talk to more people. We have relationships through our networks, through our broad-based organizations that went out and talked to people, continue to talk to people, have conversations, and so we were able to engage ourselves in the real decisions that took place during Hurricane Katrina. As you're working with public officials, what value are you adding if the only, if the only uh, thoughts and, and, and ideas you have come from four or five people and not from four or five thousand people? Why should they work with you? Well, what are you really bringing? So that's the first thing. Together make decisions. They were also poorly prepared. They were not ready for this. This has not happened before. And many of them didn't have the relationships in the community, particularly communities of color, to pull upon because those relationships were poor. Second thing I would say is what we call the iron rule. Never ever do for others what they can do for themselves. People are not children. When survivors first arrived in Houston, they were put into the Astrodome. And T.D. Jakes was there, Oprah Winfrey was there, and they said, we love you! We're, we're going to take care of you. We will help you. And then they flew off in the jets. <laughs> and so Reverend McGee from TMO, our, our, our sister organization in Sydney, Alliance here, he got up and said, now for those of you who want to help yourselves, we're having a meeting here in 15 minutes. Come on and join us. And so then the teachers, the pastors, the community leaders that were there in the Astrodome, they were being treated as if they were just Victims, no nothings, children, they came forward and they talked about the things that they wanted. They said, look, we're all here in the Astrodome just popped in this space. We've got people with medical needs here. We have to have a space designated for them. We also have children here. They used to be a place for those kids to play. And then they say, yes, we want the social services to come and meet a place. So they organized the Astrodome. And it came from listening to the people who are actually affected by the problem. They also said, look, we want our cell phones turned off because people couldn't get self-service. And so in a meeting with the mayor that we were there and we had survivors there with us, in the meeting with the mayor and, and other groups, we said, you got to get the cell phones on. And miraculously, we got the cell phones on that day. Also, there was this great idea about putting people on a yacht to house them. This is a good solution. We, we got these big boats out there. We'll put people on it. But the only problem was, you know, folks in New Orleans, they, they didn't want any more water. They didn't want to give any more water. And they said, no. But if we hadn't talked with them and made sure they were at the table, they would have been, they would have been abused again. The iron rule. Never do for others what they can do for themselves. The, the key in the organizing of Katrina survivors was that we, we believed that people had capacity and we gave them the dignity to tell us whether or not they wanted to work with us. And that is key. 
Because people can solve their own issues if we let them, and if we trust them to do that. Another thing that we learned out of this, it was reinforced, was the importance of relationships. We had a meeting of 600 in Austin where we began to brainstorm and talk about what do we need to do to help survivors and work with survivors as part of our statewide agenda. And we, we agitated each other's imagination about what could actually happen. We went from there and had a meeting of 200 in one of the suburbs called Plano, the most Republican suburb in the state of Texas. Now that's saying something, folks. <laughs> and they hosted a meeting at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Standing room only, red beans and rice dinner. And that really was the birth of the Katrina Survivors Network. But it came out of the agitation of our imagination about what could be done. I don't have time to go into everything that happened. But we actually held a satellite vote where we got the, made it possible for people to participate in actual votes that went on in New Orleans while they were in Dallas. We also began to understand that this is not a temporary crisis. This is a permanent resettlement. And so we need to move this from FEMA, which is a temporary program, to HUD, which is permanent. And that was a big fight for us, and we wanted, we wrote the legislation for it, went to Washington, and in 2009 they passed the Resettlement Act, which provided for 10,000 vouchers that you heard about, uh, for people who had not received any support at all. By working together with our organizations, all of our congregations together, we were able to do things that we never even imagined were possible with such a disparate group of people who were constantly going back and forth to New Orleans trying to figure out how to get their lives back together. And we were able to, do the, to create the KSN that did some good in helping people have the power to determine things that happen in their lives. One of the stories that I'll close with is from Ada Simmons. Ada Simmons came to the Red Beans and Rice dinner and she was depressed. Her daughter got her to come. And she came and she liked it. And she ended up being one of the leaders, the premier leaders of the network. Five years later, we had a fundraiser at that same church. And she told the people there at the fundraiser, when I first came through these doors, I was a victim. But I'm coming back today as a change agent. Ada was, was and is a powerful, powerful leader that made all kinds of change for, for her members of the KSN and for her city. So when you're looking at dealing with climate change issues, leadership matters, okay? It matters a lot. The iron rule, people have capacity. Don't take that away from them. Networks of relationships. Much of what we did was possible only because we had organizations in different cities and we could leverage that power to affect Congress as well as our state and local leaders. But we also learned from each other. We learned from each other and it gave us hope. How much time do you have? <laughs> let me, let me so, so, did everyone hear the question at the back? Yeah, so, so the question was, uh, why weren't there any emergency plans? Where was FEMA? What went wrong? Let me see if I can be brief. Um, first, this, this had never happened before. 25,000 people coming. That was new, okay. The FEMA, FEMA, the, 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 the context around this was, FEMA was one of the premier United States agencies. They knew what they were doing. But, George Bush was president, 
And he appointed, he, he just did a political appointee who had virtually no experience in this. In addition, they were, they were doing devolution. They were, they, were, they, were cutting, they were cutting budgets across the board and pushing things down to the cities and states. And so many of the staff that knew what to do on the ground were no longer there. Consequently, so you had FEMA without the resources that it used to have, without the people who knew what to do, and they were sending in people into the cities that, that were getting there. They were not from the cities. They knew no one. They had no real experience in doing this. And then they cycled them out every three months. And so finally, my EPA guy just told FEMA, look, look, we're not listening to you. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't listen to us. So that's part of the problem there. On the Dallas end, yeah, that part of just the mayor. Leadership matters. Um, the, the mayor had a bad relationship with, with people of color. And she needed them on this one. And, and even though she couldn't prepare for 25,000 people, she could have prepared relationships with the community already. Churches were the heroes. Thankfully, most people didn't go to that stupid meeting that day. And those who didn't go went to the Union Arena where all the survivors were and took them home or took them to their church in their cars. That was a great part of it. The bad part of it was when FEMA got there, people were mostly gone. And so they didn't know where anybody was. And so it took another six months for everybody to find FEMA because FEMA wasn't running out to the suburbs where they were. Um, we had to force FEMA to go out there. So people had to come back in town and, and register with FEMA. So it wasn't like they were all in the Astrodome and everybody was registered right there as it was in Houston. It was very, very different in, in the Dallas area. The question is, how were some of the young people mobilized? We worked through our institutions. So you have youth groups. You have neighborhood groups that would go out with us. Uh, we still do it today. Uh, have them going out door to door. In church youth groups, um, high schools groups, with our schools going out. Uh, that's one of the ways we were able to get people out for this. We, we were, if you want to want to walk with us, you can come. I have never seen people treated as badly as the Katrina survivors were in my life, ever as a group. Uh, we had we had state representatives calling people lazy, good for nothing in public. People that they never met. But again, I sat down with an agency leader, and she was spouting the same kind of things. And I, and I called her on it. How can you say that? Who have you met with that's like that? But that was that was what was commonplace, and that's part of what we were fighting against. You keep on using the word relational, um, and you said you know, New Orleans is a, was a relational place. Other areas not so relational. What what does that mean in the context of building capacity, and, and how can communities become relational? <laughs> In the IF, we do relational organizing. To us, what that means is it is organizing is face-to-face, person-to-person, or in small groups. And we, we organize around relationships. We organize around relationships not because that's the fastest way to do it, but because that is the way to bring about change that we have been able to do over time. So that when the, the, the struggles come as you pull together a multi-ethnic multi-class, multi-religious group, there'll be deep struggles. But if you have the relationships, people won't run for the door when you have your arguments. And that has been our, our experience and why we stick to this method because we're able to have authentic conversations and able to deal with real issues over time because it takes time to deal with these issues because they didn't happen overnight. And relationships are the glue that holds us together in all of our organizations. 
Welcome back to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'm Andy. That was Reverend Willie Bennett speaking. Uh, I'm excited to announce tonight we've got a new team member on Beyond Zero Emissions. Um, I'm going to pass now to Erin if she'd like to say hello and tell us what we've got coming up next. Hi, Andy. Thanks for that. Looking forward to helping out. So now, after we um, listen to Reverend Willie Bennett, we're going to continue on our theme, and we hear from the panel at a meeting on building community resilience. Reverend Sophosia Carroll is a Uniting Church minister. She is p- particularly tuned into the impacts of climate change on Pacific peoples and works with the Uniting World. So let's have a listen to her. And in that workshop, it's a week-long workshop, we bring together three important components of climate change uh, resilience and also uh, response. And that is disaster risk reduction or management. So that is helping communities build resilience and also uh, mapping the vulnerability of their communities in country. The second strand is a very important and critical one in the Pacific because we are church people. And so God is very important and faith is very important. The challenge is that faith uh, at the moment in the Pacific is one that uh, has paralysed people rather than enabled them to engage. Why? Because for many people in the Pacific, uh, rising sea levels, you're going to lose your home, right? And you can actually look out your window and see the waves lapping at your door. You know that in some time, your home's going to go. You're not going to have, you know, a place. And not only that, for example, in Tuvalu uh, with Cyclone Pam, or the side effects of Cyclone Pam was to actually unearth uh, graves because, uh, you know, it's a low-lying atoll. And so when the waves came up, it actually uh, unearthed the graves of the dead. And so, you know, it's very disconcerting to see bones of your uh, ancestors actually floating before your eyes. So the reality of climate change is real. And the impact is so real. But what it is causing is an emotional uh, and psychological shutdown because it's too real. Mm -hmm. Um, And so therefore, faith becomes an anchor that actually says, God will save. Uh, now, you know, we, you know, when I first started in this role, I thought, okay, that's very funny that the ark will come again. But when you sit and think about it, it is actually quite a, uh, you know, a good de facto or default position because, you know, it's kind of, well, I don't have any resources to get out of here. I don't have family overseas. So the fact that the ark will come again and God will save me in this way becomes a very kind of comforting anchor. And so these are some of the challenges that the Navigating Tides workshop is wanting to address. So theology is critical and pivotal. The third aspect is what we're uh, looking uh, is what we call the disaster recovery response, and that is building chaplaincy networks within the community so that they can actually uh, prepare. So it's disaster preparedness and pastoral response in that. So that's uh, one of the programs that we run in the Pacific that bring together the psychosocial, the theological and the pastoral in order to build capacity and to build resilience and hope within communities who are actually feeling the impact of climate change. In Australia, what we're finding is that the the need to create awareness within our Pacific Island communities, because we too in our Pacific Island communities actually probably don't believe it is happening uh, for many of us, but for those of us 
that do know it is happening, it is actually a grave responsibility on us to actually be advocates and to be prophetic in the public space, both in terms of politics and advocating uh, politically. Uh, and uh, in saying that, I was part of the Mano Moana that Zane organised. So 350.org was very um, uh, on the front line of actually organising that and going to uh, Prime Minister Turnbull's house. It was actually very fun, but it's too much of a coward and I didn't get in the kayak. Uh, but I'm saying I'm a land person, right? Um, I also uh, need to acknowledge that the, the importance of relationship building, that the climate change march in Sydney, Pacific Islanders, and mobilising them wasn't only a one-person um, sort of effort. It wasn't just me. Uh, and why was a thousand significant for Pacific Islanders to be, you know, to be on, in the march? Because as far as I know, in my life in this country, uh, we don't get that kind of numbers with Pacific Islanders, except at rugby or at a game. Now, this was a, this was an issue that they took up and ran with. But I want to say that this uh, particular mobilisation was actually the effort of a number of people, Zane from 350.org and others, Luana from Sydney Alliance and also David, the, uh, and then working with ministers, Pacific Island ministers in the diaspora to mobilise their community. So it was kind of, you know, someone drives it, but at the same time it's identifying people who can drive alongside of you and actually push uh, Pacific Islanders, to, who were particularly leaders, to get excited, inspired, and to be involved uh, in the actual effort. So, uh, in that sense, and particularly for us in the Pacific, relationships are very important, uh, and it's something that we do naturally. But we just need to uh, learn how to capitalise, and maybe I think manipulate every now and then um, <laughs> to get people going. So these are just uh, some ways in which, um, yeah, the Pacific Islanders have been involved. So that was listening to Reverend Carroll, who's the Uniting Church Minister, and um, some of the issues particularly that are facing peoples from the Pacific. So now we're just going to have some music, and this um, is a song by David Rovix called New Orleans, and this links very much to what Reverend Willie Bennett was talking about in our earlier interview. Everybody knew that it could happen. The likelihood was clear. The future was coming. And now it's here. They had to fix the levees, because otherwise they'd break. On one side was the city. Above it was the lake. It was in the daily papers. In bold letters was the writ. What would happen when the big one hit? But every year they cut the funding just a little more so they could give it to the army. To fight their oil war National Geographic and the Times begin They forecast the apocalypse Said it was coming soon Preparations must be made, they said Now is the time It was years ago, they shouted Inaction was a crime They said the dikes must be improved And the wetlands must be seen But Washington decided Instead they should repeat Cause laws were more important than people's lives so put some gold dust in your eyes and hope no storm arrives. 
years and years or more. No evacuation plan. It was just that the waters rose. Get out if you can. There were no buses. No one chartered any trains. There was no plan to rescue all of those who would remain. All the people with no money. All the people with no wheels. All of those who couldn't hotwire one that they could steal. Thousands and thousands of people abandoned by the state, abandoned by their country, just left to meet their fate. New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans. to the Beyond Zero show on Radio 3CR, Melbourne 855 on your AM dial. Our next interview, we're going to talk about a meeting and continue our theme of resilience. Um, And our next speaker is Dr Cassandra Goldie, who is the head of the Australian Council of Social Service. Mm 
therapy, you know, the cyclones come. And I've been in my job um, managing the community leaders centre up there for less than a few weeks. And Cyclone Thelma came, which was actually of the same size as Cyclone Tracy. Uh, it's a Category 5. And I remember going into my office and I think, I don't have a plan. <laughs> and I was, you know, I'm responsible for this group of people. And I found myself in front of a computer trying to write a policy <laughs> as the cyclone was coming. <laughs> ditch, ditch that idea, talk, listen. And in, over the course of that afternoon, people came to that centre because it was a place they knew where there were people they could trust and they were looking for shelter. And the story goes on. And we were lucky overnight. It actually diverted and it didn't hit that town. But I remember so powerfully, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. Um, so here we are at ACOS um, some time later. And, um, and um, I mean, ACOS, it's a national organisation, independent of government. Um, amongst our membership, we have thousands of civil society organisations that are on the ground, like that community legal centre, all over Australia. Um, in many respects with um, direct personal experience of having been through some kind of extreme event. Um, and there was, you know, this is a room of people who absolutely know, as Monica said, that one of our greatest risks is the level of poverty, deprivation and ex social exclusion. There is no doubt about that. Um, so um, there is, I think, um, <laughs> mentioned earlier, there's sort of the two cultures, you know, command and control. Um, on the one hand, yes, plenty of great uniform response. Long history of that in Australia. I think arguably less focus on the community leadership um, to recognise the social changes that have happened in Australia. Um, the fact that often this was work that was invisible, it was often not only, of course, but women-led, um, you know, volunteer, of course it will happen, but no visibility, you know, no recognition, no respect that this is actually crucial part of the resilience of the environment. Um, and so uh, uh, some time ago, um, ACOS, we've worked very closely with um, environmental organisations. We take the issue of climate change very, very seriously. Um, but we saw that it was so crucial for us to do our bit to start to play a leadership role in to providing some direction of what could be done to lift up the experience of so many community-led organisations and to try to ourselves help to provide access and be a stronger voice to say this must be respected as part of our agenda on resilience right at every level of government. And, and so in 2003, uh, we did uh, what I understand is the first national survey to do this sort of health check right through community organisations. Lots of surveys happen. It was the biggest response we got. Participation to tell us what was going on. Disturbing finding a quarter, over a quarter of community organisations would not survive. If a, if a disastrous event hit, they were not ready um, and so what we have done is move to the next stage of the deep analysis about the findings of that. Um, I want to acknowledge my colleague Emily Hamilton who's with us who has been working very extensively with partners like Red Cross and others on um, the next stage. We now have a very clear resource 
for community led organisations about how to do our bit, play our part to be ready and to be more resilient. And Reverend, can I just, this is, this is the tool leading by resilience, building of networks, um, looking after yourself, the community organisation, it's a responsibility if we have that knowledge about who's most vulnerable, who's isolated, who's sick, it's important, it's a bit like the metaphor of you know, on the aeroplane, put your oxygen mask on first. Make sure we're ready. So our, our, our insurance, business continuity insurance, is that in place? All those sorts of things. Because the truth is that once often the uniforms go, it will be the community organisations that are there for the months, that will need to be there for the months and years ahead. Um, and so this is, we are in the middle of this work. Um, and so you know, to hear that kind of, um, we, we certainly looked at the experience of Katrina, I won't go into all the research, we looked at what happened there, we've looked at what happened in Victoria with the bushfires, and there's this consistent theme that where there is already strong community leadership through, like the Sydney Alliance, you know, um, where the high trust relationships are already there, that actually the recovery and response is much, much stronger and quicker. The evidence is there. And so my last comment would be to make that I don't think this is anywhere near enough recognised as one of the prices we are paying in the Australian environment for a lot of defunding of civil society capacity, for a lot of competitive tendering, constant recycling of who is who in these environments without any recognition of how vital the resourcing of in-place community leaders who have the high trust. This is not just a business model for short-term cheap services to be provided. These are about human relationships, so that would be my my question is about heat waves, because that's the biggest killer related to climate change, more than bushfires that Australia and perhaps Pakistan, India, we face. Could each of you tell me what is the best practice in heat wave preparation using this community model? What we're doing at the city is obviously, look, um, you know, one of our key programs. We, our vision is to do the Sustainable City 2030 vision is to build a, or to create a green, global, and connected city. So the green bit is about the environmental performance of the city, but it's also about the greening of the city. So we have to cool the city and create lots of green spaces so that there are there are cool places to go during heat waves. So at a physical level, it's about planting as many trees as we can plant, greening as much of the city as we can green. And my favourite project is the project where we remove hard surfaces and we've literally removed thousands and thousands of square metres of hard surfaces. So basically, we remove the concrete and we plant, and if you look around the city, you'll see it. I mean, the community love it because it makes the streets look beautiful. It cools the streets. And of course, in terms of um, climate change, what we know is Sydney is going to get, we already see it. Um, uh, when we get the rain, we get a lot. 
and the stormwater system doesn't cope with it. To augment the stormwater system is very, very expensive. The drain we're putting in Green Street at the moment is $100 million or more, $120 million, right? The drain that has to go into Erskineville now is about $50 million. We've got to find other places for the rain to go, and so the less hard surfaces, the more the rain is absorbed. And so they look beautiful, but there are rain gardens, they green, they cool, and they absorb the water. There are mitigation strategies on them. The, the thing that, in particular, um, obviously the physical conditions that people who are vulnerable um, are living in. And so we know that um, energy poverty is, will often be a reason that people will feel very constrained about cooling um, and about heating, you know, the, sort of the extremes of weather. And so um, at a very simple level, our position is we should not be doing anything to allow one more piece of stock to be built that is not the absolute best we can deliver on energy efficiency um, and ensuring that it is to the highest standard in terms of insulation and being able to cope with the extremes of, of weather. It is crazy. We've had, uh, um, in the last round of affordable housing investment, which was kind of good, but it allowed us to build stock in Darwin that had to be t air conditioned 24-7 mm -hmm. to be livable. Within the last, that's five years ago. You know, it's shameful, that stuff. It's extraordinary. And of course, it will mean that older people who will worry about money and others will simply turn the air conditioning off and then you will see these examples. So that's the message that we want to keep absolutely ramming home and the fact that in terms of investment in housing, you know, all the discussions, as Monica knows, we will stay on and around stimulating investment into affordable housing, but we cannot allow that to be done where we're just focused on the cheapest in the build. It's got to be efficient and to mean that people can live in it and cope with these extreme workers and meet those, those needs. Obviously, there are other parts of the around emergency responses and relationships, including with community organisations. But, but the, that one is one where we're still, it's so tractable. Big vested interests, <laughs> property development. <laughs> So lastly, Vivian speaks to Merriwa Johnson. Merriwa is from SEED, which is an Indigenous organisation associated with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. She embodies resilience and the sort of community spirit we have been hearing about all night. And have your pens ready at the end to note down how you can lend them some support. Tonight's guest is a person from Brisbane called Marawa. She's representing the SEED organisation, Australia's first Indigenous Youth Climate Network for Climate Justice. Hello, Marawa. How are you? Hi. Good evening. I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm fine. Look, could you tell the listeners what is your vision, you know, for the SEED organisation? What is it? Great. So SEED uh, being the first Indigenous Youth Climate Network in the country means that it's been recognised that uh, young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia uh, see the climate crisis as an issue, but not just that, that the fossil fuel extraction that happens on our country and impacts on our communities is also a major issue as well. 
Um, and so we say that we work towards climate justice, which means that the people who have been on the front line fighting for the longest are actually the people who are part of um, leading the solutions, I guess, to, to, to deal with the impact of climate change and the, also the impact that it has on our communities in our social and political um, environments as well. Right. Well, look, one of the main things about climate change that we always try to repeat is connecting the dots between fossil fuels and the impact on the climate, the greenhouse gases that come from burning the fossil fuels. But mining is such a contentious thing in Australia. And recently, I think Warren Mundine said, the Greens agenda will keep Indigenous Australians in poverty. The greatest threat to Aboriginal language and culture is the desire to live on country and the inability to build uh, the greatest threat to that is their inability to build a real economy and he seemed to think mining jobs would be the answer so can you tell me is mining a solution to black poverty um well i think the cause of black poverty is the government for starters um and so any proposed solution or any solution pushed pushed forward by the government for Aboriginal people that doesn't actually address the relationship between, like the paternalistic relationship between the government and Aboriginal people actually is just totally distracting away from the root cause and what the solution could be. At the same time, I think Warren Mundine, I would like him to show me an Aboriginal community that has actually been brought out of poverty from agreeing to mining on their country mm. and having people in their community participate in the digging up of their country. Mm. I don't know one community in Australia where mining has been the source of salvation out of, um, yeah, horrific social, political, I guess, strife. Um, so while they've been saying this and spreading this narrative to Aboriginal communities through 60-plus years, mm. uh, I don't see any proof of it anywhere. Well, that's right. If we look globally, you know, they call it the resources curse. You know, countries like Nigeria, Timor, just to our north with the oil, you know, it's a resource curse when you've got it because it seems like a great deal of money that's going to come your way, but it creates a huge amount of stress and dividing communities. This has nothing to do with Indigenous people at all. It's just wherever it is, a big uh, wealth to be had, it just seems to be unable to be used to the common good. And um, I'd like you to tell us about some of the areas where these fossil fuel companies are pressuring local communities. Oh, of course. So you've got the whole Bowen Basin of Queensland. If you want to see what the Galilee Basin looks like dug up, go to the Bowen Basin just an hour and a half next door. Um, Tell us what it looks like. Tell us what it looks like. Uh, where to begin? (laughs) Um, Massive holes in the ground. Uh, It's not country anymore. There's a lot of healing that needs to be done. Um, it's not natural, it's not the way that it's supposed to be and when the earth is destroyed and all these poisons from the mines and the runoff seeps into our water system, especially since the Great Artesian Basin is just a few hundred feet down, Mm. which is the water table, like the minute that that's poisoned then we're all in a great deal of danger. Um, I'm just talking about where I come from in central Queensland but at the same time... um, there has been indigenous resistance to the destruction of country 
since the first landing in yeah. 1788. Yeah. Um, I think at the moment, so the Northern Territory is covered in 95% to 98%. Um, gas um, and other fossil fuel exploration licenses okay. and the problem with this is is that um, so while these people should have the, uh, these Aboriginal people should have the rights to veto um, off of um, previous Land Rights Act now, Acts now that they've got the intervention in there um, we've heard from traditional owners in the Northern Territory that have actually said the intervention has watered down their rights in the Land Rights Act and now so they can't actually use, exercise their rights in the way that they could have in the past and since the intervention has been introduced now they've got yeah 95% of the Northern Territory covered in exploration licenses uh, this is absolutely ridiculous and this is what happens I think especially in Australia where the people who are saying that you know who are challenging that um, narrative that fossil fuel extraction and mining is a salvation out of poverty people who challenge that and say well we've got something much more wealthy and that's our country mm. and we don't want it destroyed they have been systematically attacked and then there has been legislation introduced by state, territory and federal governments that um, work against the interests of Aboriginal people and work to specifically disenfranchise them and expedite mining. And this is a situation we've been working in for the last 20 years. Well, I just can say one word that in contrast to that is muckety mm. because that was a win, wasn't it? Yes, but it took... Did it take 15 years? Yes, yes. This is, this, this again, speaks to the situation yeah. that um, even a native title claim, let alone a campaign against um, destructive industries, it has to take 15 years and it's designed to be process-driven so that our old people die yeah, and no, then they can bad. run the narrative again that, yeah. oh, if your old people are dead, you don't have any continued connection to country if you no longer have those stories oh, or that yeah. language. Yeah. And so we can declare you a sacrifice zone and we can do what we want with your people, your resources and your country. Mm. Well, you sound very alive and very young. That's great that there's, <laughs> your, you know, your group is coming up. And I also I spoke to Adrian Baragaba a few times about the Adani case because that's been so high profile and this big thing about Galilee Basin. Last time I heard there was a court case pending. Can you fill us in on the latest with that struggle? Yes, so outside of my role as one of the seed state coordinators, I am also a, uh, I'm a traditional owner from central Queensland. I'm a part of the Wanganet Jagalingu people who are fighting the Adani Carmichael coal mine, and I'm a Wirribee woman, a part of the broader Birragaba peoples. Um, and so with the mine at the moment, so we have three legal actions running at the moment. Um, one of them would be the most um, high-profile one, which is our federal court judicial review. Um, and it's a review of the native title tribunal decision to, so despite the fact that we had not consented to the mine, we had said no at a proposed um, Ilua meeting with Adani. WNJ people on the 4th of October 2014 said no. Um, that was our mandate to go ahead and challenge the mine. Uh, Adani went for compulsory acquisition. We, um, so my uncle Adrian had written to the tribunal saying um, the people have said no. 
I respect that and take that on as my mandate. And so I, as an applicant um, for the claim group and for the, for the people, I'm asking you to take into consideration the fact that we've said no and outlined, you know, these are our totems, this is our mm. creation and this is our identity and the essence of our life and if you mm. allow this mine to go ahead and allow the Queensland State Government to issue the mining leases, um, especially without our consent, then this will be the destruction of our country and us as a people. Um, the Native Title Tribunal... Um, still uh, didn't take that into consideration, um, made a decision saying that despite the fact that the people had not consented, uh, I will say to the Queensland State Government, the act may be done, meaning that the State Government can issue the mining leases. Now, in order for the State Government to issue the mining leases, they need two things. One is the Federal Government Environmental Approval, which they got from Minister Hunt, and the second is the native title approval, which they got from the tribunal, regardless of the fact that the people had said no. Um, so since we launched our public uh, political campaign in March of 2015, um, we've had a judicial, a federal court judicial review running of the native titles tribunal's decision to actually allow the state to go ahead and do what they may, despite the fact that we had said no. Um, and so that's been running for almost 18 months now. Mm. Um, we also have two other court cases running, another in the federal court, another as a state judicial review of the actual Queensland state who attempted to issue mining leases to Adani on the 3rd of April this year, despite the fact that they had said to us in writing until the federal court judicial review, um, until a decision's handed down uh, they won't be making any decisions about issuing a lease. They um, went back on their word, issued a lease anyway. Um, so we've got a state judicial review running in conjunction with that. We've got a United Nations submission to the Special Repertoire on the Rights of Indigenous People. We've got a Human Rights Commission complaint based on the Racial Discrimination Act. Um, that's happening at the moment as well. Um, so at the moment, um, we've built a public profile um, and our foundation for or our authority to do so was the fact that we had all of these legal cases running. Yeah. Um, now everything's in the courts and it may play, most of it will play out in about November. Okay. Um, so from here, we consolidate what we've built so far and we work towards that in building relationships yeah. um, and also trying to, I guess, educate the movement and say, if you want environmental justice, you can't have that without land justice. Yeah. And if you, if you believe that land justice is imperative for environmental justice because it is, then you need to follow us and support us. Right. Well, look, thank you very much. That's a very comprehensive thing um, I'm going to ask you at the end to tell us the website that people can look at or Facebook page so that they can find out the latest because this is obviously a long and drawn out but because it's so big how do you keep your 
people together. You say relationships are very strong and you feel like family with this big group of people. But how, well, what is it? What's the glue that keeps you together? Well, the campaign is mandated by um, our family council. So we have a family council of 24 members. So two members from each of the 12 uh, family lines. Um, and we convene every month, two months, three months, mm. um, to talk about the new direction of the campaign where we're at at the moment with the legals and also to ensure that all of the families are up to date on what's actually happening. Yeah. Um, and so these people who are part of the council are the representatives of their families who are supposed to be sharing that information and taking that back to people because... In the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, as Indigenous people, we have the right to free, prior, and informed consent. Yeah. Um, and so we actually can't make any. We can't, um, I guess, make any legitimate decisions if everyone's not informed. And so, the best way to, you know, keep everyone together is to have everyone on the same page and mm. keep everyone informed about what we're doing and where we're going from here and what this actually means for reigniting the land rights movement in Australia. Thank you. Well, look, fantastic. We're just out of time now, but tell us, um, thank you for informing us too, keeping thank us informed. Much. Can you tell us the name of the website or where people can find more information and follow and maybe support you? Great. So if you want to support Seed, which I recommend everyone does, please go to seedmob.org.au. Uh, you can find out more about us there. Um, you can also go to the Seed Mob Facebook page uh, or Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network Facebook page. Yep. Sorry, S-E-E-D. Um, and in terms of the Wangan and Jagalangu people's fight against the Adani Carmichael coal mine, you can go to wanganjagalangu.com.au or it's probably easier to go to our Facebook page. So Wangan and Jagalangu, J-A-G. A-L-I-N-G-O-U um, Family Council um, and we have a Facebook page that's updated with um, where we're at at the moment with our campaign the newest articles and also a link to our website um, and our page for donations as well which Fantastic. we're happy to receive. Okay, so listeners, write it down please now that might be hard to remember um, Jagalingu and yeah. Seed. <laughs> Another way to contribute is to um, so we're selling some T-shirts and all proceeds go directly to the campaign. So culturebeforecoal.com, all one word, culturebeforecoal.com. Oh, yes, yeah. um, and you can buy a T-shirt and all of, those t uh, all of the proceeds go directly to the campaign as well. Thank you very much, and thank you for being such a sort of gutsy presenter. I think you're going far. Thank you. It's very good to be able to thank speak you. publicly like that and, and enthuse people. So that, thank you really for speaking to us. Thank you very much. Thanks you have a good afternoon. Welcome back to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show this Monday night. Uh, I'd like to thank Erin, our new panellists, for joining us tonight. Would you like to thank the guests for us, please, Erin? Yeah, sure, Andy. Um, so, our, just to recap, our wonderful guests tonight were Reverend Willie Bennett talking about Hurricane Katrina Survivors Network, Reverend Sephora Carroll, um, Church Participations for the Pacific Uniting World, Dr Cassandra Goldie, CEO of the Australian Council of Social Service, 
and Mirawai Johnson, who we just heard from then from SEED, which is an Indigenous Youth Climate Action Group. So that was um, the show for tonight. You can listen to our podcasts um, of this show if you go to Beyond Zero Emissions or website is bze.org.au. And that's probably, um, we should tie up the show now. Time to, uh, the next show coming on will be Save Albert Park. So here's some music. Thanks for joining us. Cheers.